Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is world maestro Colin O'Donohoe. But first of all, I bet you never thought about the music that that ice cream truck is playing as it rolls down your local street. It turns out that there's one company that holds a monopoly on the music for ice cream trucks. This is a small little company from Minnesota called Nichols Electronics that was started in 1957. It sells music boxes that are preloaded with jingles, jingles that everybody can remember, everybody can identify. In the beginning of ice cream trucks, actually they used manual bobsled bells, but that turned out to be a lot of work, ringing those things all day long. So then there was a series of ad hoc mechanical boxes with the most sophisticated of the time being a 1940s microphone and amplifier system that were attached to a radio. Nichols Electronics came around in 1957, and it was found at the time that ice cream trucks with music boxes sold twice as much as just a normal ice cream truck. So then their sales began to take off, peaking in 2003 at about 2,000 boxes per year. Now they only sell three or 400 a year, but that being said, every time there's a big financial downturn, there's a bump in sales. And COVID, in fact, has been pretty good for business as well. It seems like when a lot of people are at home, they're also eating ice cream. So what makes a good ice cream truck song? Turns out that the songs are short, anywhere between 15 and 45 seconds. They have to be easy to remember. They have to be structurally simple. And almost all of them are rooted in nostalgia. The current Nichols box is preloaded with 32 songs that are all in the public domain. And they range from things like Camptown Races to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, London Bridges, Sailing Sailing, and a bunch more that you probably know from your childhood. That being said, new songs are being tried all the time and they always seem to fail. Except for one. In 1973, they came across a song that was popularized by the movie The Sting, the Scott Joplin 1902 rag, The Entertainer. And ever since then, it's been the song of choice on ice cream trucks everywhere. So the next time you hear an ice cream truck rambling down your street, you hear the music, just know that the music is probably coming from a Nichols Electronics music box. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Yeah, that's the music of the theremin. And guess what? It's the 100th anniversary of the instrument. In 1920, Russian physicist Lev Sergeyevich Theremin, in the West, he was known as Leon Theremin, invented the instrument that's so closely related to science fiction. Probably know it has two sensors, an upright one that's for pitch and a vertical one that's for volume. And they're not particularly easy to learn how to use. 
The first commercial unit was actually released in 1929 by RCA. But what happened was, this is right after the market crash, so it really didn't sell that much. It was still really interesting to concert goers, though, and it was promoted primarily by violin prodigy Clara Rockmore as she toured the United States playing to concert halls everywhere. What most people don't know is that the instrument was designed for orchestral use with the idea that it would fit nicely between the violas and the cellos in the orchestra. Well, it never really worked out that way, but it did gain a place in the hearts of many, many people, especially in the science fiction realm. Interestingly enough, Leon Theremin was kidnapped by the KGB in 1938 in New York City and taken back to Russia, where he was forced to work in electronic research in a factory in Siberia. He returned to the United States in 1991. In the meantime, Bob Moog, yes, of Moog music fame, started building theremins in 1954 from some magazine plans that he saw. He went on to publish articles about the theremin and sold kits. And Moog music now sells four different models, including the new Clarivox Centennial. As I said before, the theremin has been used on film soundtracks like The Day the Earth Stood Still. But that being said, some of the most famous instances where people think a theremin is used was actually something else. For instance, the first real sci-fi film ever was Forbidden Planet, and everybody thinks the theremin is all over it, but in fact it's just a number of oscillators. Everybody also thinks it was on Star Trek. Not true. And Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. Well, it wasn't exactly a theremin, it was something called the electro-theremin, which uses a slide bar for the pitch, so you can hit the pitch a little bit easier than you can by just waving your hand in the air. So the next time you hear a theremin, understand that it has a long and interesting history. It's probably going to be around for another hundred years at least. My guest this week is Colin O'Donohoe, who's worked as a composer, conductor, band leader, drummer, flautist, and audio engineer in the United States, Japan, South Korea, Mongolia, Brazil, and Turkey. In 2010, his Pangean Orchestra united instruments and musicians from around the world and gained international recognition to where he was nicknamed World Maestro. Colin also composes for television and film, with his music being featured on The Dr. Oz Show, Good Morning America, and Axis Hollywood. During the interview, we talked about learning composition and orchestration as a drummer, joining a Chinese orchestra, his outlook on using indigenous instruments and players, living in Turkey, how he got his nickname World Maestro, and much more. I spoke with Colin via Zoom from his home in Oregon. Let's go to the beginning. How did you get started in the business? That's a great question. And I I feel like for me, it really was something destined from very early age. I can remember clearly the moment uh, my father, who was a huge music fan, uh, I remember him pulling out the from the sleeve, the record, uh, the Thriller album, Michael Jackson's Thriller album, and I must have been five or six. And we played it, and we were in the room where he has a pool table. I kind of just stopped, and I felt something in my body, my belly. Something was different, and I was just in awe of the sound and how cool it was. And I believe probably back then I thought, I don't know what this is, but I want to. I want to know, and this is just great. And from there, 
Uh, I was part of the MTV generation watching the, you know, all those videos. My father would take me to art, uh, philharmonic concerts and jazz concerts. And by the time I was 10 or 11 and finally in school, they gave me some drums, you know, an instrument you could pick, pick drums. And I was in Rochester, New York, and I was fortunate that I could, at around 12 and a half, I took uh, very intensive courses during the summer through their continuing ed programs. And I got to start learning theory, got to start learning how to perform better and started in a rock band. So I guess getting started in the business, I started as a rock and roll drummer and I loved it. And it was kind of those last glory days of rock bands where, you know, I was in a literal garage band, not the app. And yeah, I think after about two years of practicing with the same guys all the time, we started to play some gigs. And uh, I remember being 13, 14, and I would, my older brother would drive me to the clubs in Rochester and my little self would just walk in there with my cassette tape, find the manager and say, hey, I'm in this band. I think you should check this out because I know we'd be great in your club. And I think people must have just laughed and been like, who is this little kid? But we got our first phone call. We got our first yes. And my first gig was on July 4th weekend at a rock club. And I think that was really where I got the first taste of it. And after that, forget it. I, I was hooked. Um, and I've just been digging deeper, going further ever since. But it, for me, it started real, real young. So from there, obviously, you know a lot about composition and orchestration. Drummers normally don't. I know. I've been told that many times. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Yes. So where did you learn that? Uh, through, through Eastman at first, we did the four-part choral writing and voice leading and learning harmonic progressions through that. And then I had a great, my, my public schools that I went to had a strong music theory department. And then uh, I also, as a drummer, I knew I didn't have the skills I needed or I wanted to be a composer. So I began taking piano lessons again through the Eastman program and learning how to play classical piano. And uh, I had a very strong work ethic from a pretty young age. I'd say by, by the time I was 14 or 15, I was practicing about six hours a day uh, between drum set and piano. And those skills, those hours of playing scales and all kinds of scales, it really starts to ingrain in you what the sound is and what sounds you want, what sounds you don't want. Uh, and then you have lots of happy accidents, happy mistakes. You play the thing wrong, but it sounds cooler than what the right one was. Uh, so I, I began taking it pretty seriously around 16, 17, formed my own orchestra in high school because I had written some compositions and I needed a group to play it. And I'm never one to really take no or it's impossible as an answer. So I just started asking friends, hey, would you like to be in a group? And I formed my own orchestra and we had these end of the year concerts in the high school and I would put on my own show. I didn't know how to conduct, but I figured how hard can it be? I can just go up there and, and lead. But I didn't really know what I was doing. It didn't stop me from doing it. <laughs> but, yeah. you know. But then, you know, through doing, you learn what you can and you can't do. And it depends on your attitude. If you take that as, oh, I just can't do it, then you step back. Or if you realize I can't do it today, it doesn't mean I can't do it ever. Then you seek out someone that does know how to conduct and you ask them, hey, uh, besides waving the baton, what are you doing exactly? How do you command an orchestra? Because I can't. I don't know how that works. And I was fortunate to get some real great mentors that, that took 
hours out of their time and showed me, well, this is what you do. You study the score, you know what's coming ahead of time, you know what's prone to happen in a piece because you've listened to the piece a lot before you get to the first rehearsal. So you know the brass are prone to do this or the violins might come in late here because it's an awkward phrasing for them. And you start to just kind of get into the game plan of attack with the orchestra of, well, you want to bring this out, you want to make that less. You start to be like an audio engineer where you're using faders, except you're doing it in real time. And you're doing it with real humans that are res responding to you. So um, that's how I got into learning all that. You know, what's interesting, you mentioned about starting your own orchestra. I was a composition major in Berkeley, and it was before the time of MIDI sampling, all those things. So one of the big problems for every comp major was the fact that you could never hear what you wrote until you finally got to the end and you know you, you presented it and, and you played it and it was once a semester or even once a year so it's very cool that you did that because you you don't know otherwise now it's easier with what we have in the computer we could do it but back then wow couldn't just couldn't hear it no you're absolutely right and the and the funny parts that happen is when you get those opportunities you may, you know, back when I'm, I'm 42. So when I, when I was starting, I had to actually by hand on paper, write all the parts. I'd write the conductor part. Then I, it was up to me. You can't just click a button and click print parts. You had to write the parts. And sometimes you make a mistake and like one instrument has one less measure than everybody else. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that ever happened to you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, and then, and then you as the composer, you're so on the spot because that time is so precious. You're right. It's that chance for you to get real information, and you made such a silly mistake. You know, you were writing out 12 parts, and it was late at night, and you, and you just glitched. You just, you know, and then you spend important re uh, rehearsal time trying to figure out which measure you're missing and how to get them all back on. Uh, and the other thing you hear when, when you have those rare opportunities is clashes or you chose to cluster a chord and it's in the wrong register so it just sounds muddy you know and you know you do learn a lot but back then you couldn't quickly fix it the way you can now you hear it on logic or whichever program and you hear that it's clashing you can very quickly go in there and drop it an octave or change the voicing and bam now it sounds perfect yeah. within a matter of minutes Back when, when I was doing it, it was not a matter of minutes. You know? Yeah, yeah, right. No, it was painful, actually. It was painful writing out all the parts as well. Yes. I would, you know, it's funny. I, like, I, I would put on music I like, and people would say, you know, you can't write music while you're listening to music. But I wasn't writing anymore. I was just copying. And that made it a little bit more palatable. But it is just boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, writing out the parts and you're making sure, you know, you get out your ruler to make sure all four measures, because we even had to draw the bar lines in ourselves, you know, and yeah. you make the bar lines like four measures per line so that it's very easy to read and everyone knows where the phrases are. And uh, yeah, I don't really envy those days. I don't look back at those as the good old days. I do miss, you know, that pen and paper, pencil and paper feeling. But uh, no, the computer is, I, no. Well, I'm, you'll appreciate this then. So in Hollywood here, on every movie lot, there would be 
a building, you know, a three-story building that have nothing but copyists. And that's all they did. They would be copying parts all day long. So in the early 80s, my partner and I were working for Frank Zappa and we got the idea, well, maybe we could automate this and have the computer actually do this. Because really, when it comes down to it, a lot of this is math. And the source code is your score. So Frank loved the idea and Frank understood exactly. So he got behind us and he introduced us to Rothschild Incorporated, which was the largest venture capital company at the time. It turned out that we didn't sell the idea. They were about to go on it. And at the very last moment, we had an oil embargo and they decided to put all their money into oil instead. So our idea didn't happen. But shortly thereafter, that became such a a common thing where, you know, you had Sibelius that came out and and whatever that we're doing. Encore was my first. Encore, yeah. You remember that one? Yeah, yeah. That was my first music notation. So yeah, I, I, I've been and there. And there was Mo- Mosaic. Mosaic I used for a bit. Then I went to Finale. But when I found Sibelius, for me, Sibelius was a lot more user-friendly. Yeah. Uh, Finale, I, I remember accidentally doing something and and I was doing a big band arrangement and half the arrangement disappeared and I had no idea what I did. And I had a friend that was a Finale expert. He couldn't figure out what I did and I had to rewrite all the parts. Oh. That was pretty devastating. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. It's come a long way. You spend your time in Rochester and you're getting your chops together in multiple different disciplines. Then what happened? So then I auditioned for the Allstate program for New York State in the jazz department. And I I earned my, my spot as the top drummer in New York State for 95 to 96. So I got in that band. And from there, I got to meet some really fantastic musicians from around the state of, of New York. And I also gained the attention of a bunch of colleges. So then I started going on auditions and I ended up with a full scholarship to study jazz performance at Arizona State University. Uh, so I moved from uh, Rochester all the way over to Phoenix and started, you know, started their jazz program. And the nice thing about being in Phoenix in the, in the 90s, mid 90s, there was a lot of opportunities for gigs. And I got into a swing band because swing was really happening in the late 90s and then I got work as a studio drummer and I would go into the studio with a bunch of charts and I would just sight read the charts and I would be laying down the drum tracks this is before drum drum loops and things that producers could use so I would just go in get people's charts play them down and that was a cool source of income and then another cool thing about Phoenix is that their churches were really into they were very forward thinking about using music as a source of worship and a source of helping people connect with the congregation and make it more fun and lively. So I got a bunch of jazz gigs playing drums for the choirs and for the groups at, at various churches around Phoenix. So it was a nice place to be able to earn a living performing music while studying it at the university. And then after that, so, so after that, uh, well, hmm, that's a good question. There's a little gap. I, I was really always very, very passionate about world music. And at ASU, I found this old JVC collection of music from around the world. And I would spend my lunches watching all these things from music from Cambodia and from China and from 
India and Africa. And when I graduated, the only thing I think a degree in music really does is it shows you you're at a certain level and you're ready to learn. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. your learning is now ready to begin. And uh, so for me, I took it pretty seriously that I, I kept studying world music and I found a Chinese orchestra in Phoenix and I, I volunteered. Wait, to wait a, a Chinese orchestra in Phoenix? Yeah, I think they're, they're, they're still kind of around. It's called, it's called the Phoenix Chinese Art Ensemble. Wow. And the conductor's name is Shanghao Kai, and, or it's pronounced Tai, the C in their language. But he was awesome. And he took me under his wing as a maestro and as a maestro of Chinese music. And I got to learn how, you know, in the Western orchestra, we have it broken down by woodwinds, brass, strings, percussion. In China, the breakdown of instruments is not, they do also have their families and how they set up the stage for the thing. But that was the first time that I learned that there's more than one way to do it. I just thought that's just how it is. I mean, it's how I've always seen it. And I just thought, you know, blue is blue and green is green. And when an orchestra is together, this is where they sit and this is how it works. So it was my first chance to realize there's more than one way to approach that. So I found that really interesting. I also found the instruments extremely interesting from the gujung to the pipa to the arhu. And I was like, I remember the first rehearsal, I was like a kid in a candy store. I'm just sitting there with all these instruments I'd never seen before. And, you know, this is around 2001, 2002. And the, the ubiquity of the VSTs was nowhere near uh, in existence yet where you could just pull down a patch of a pipa or pull down a patch of an arhu. So I didn't know they existed. I went there and I, and Shango, he gave me full liberty in the group. I could sit wherever I wanted in the rehearsal, talk to anyone I want to. And I just went around, I studied the instrument, I listened a lot. And then I would ask him questions about their instrument. And here's this, you know, this white guy, young jazzer, you know, asking them about their instruments. And it was very rare for them so they were more than happy to tell me what they knew. And they were very sharing, very good about talking about their instrument, the range, how it's played. And uh, I got to learn a lot from that. And from there, I moved to Pittsburgh and I got a, I was uh, studying my master's of arts administration, arts management at uh, Carnegie Mellon. And there, there was a, a professor of ethnomusicology named uh, Dr. Bell Young, and he's a renowned just expert on, on Chinese music. And he had all these instruments, but no players. And he told me, um, well, if you can find players, you can have the instruments. You can borrow them. We'll sign them out to you. And I took it upon myself, just like I had in high school. Okay, I can find players for this. I reached out to the various different groups around town, trying to find Chinese musicians or immigrants or students that played Arhu, but now they're in America. They've kind of put it to the side so they can study. But don't you want an outlet? Don't you want something fun to do on a Saturday? And I was able to get the quorum, get the instruments, and we started New Moon Orchestra, which lasted a little over two years. It won some awards. We got attention from the governor. Uh, we put on a concert at the Carnegie Music Hall in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, we played at Symphony Hall in Pittsburgh. So we, we got a pretty decent level of success there um, with this Chinese music and showing it to a Western audience. And it was just, it was really great. Um, and that really encouraged me to keep going. Then I started making some of my own uh, personal albums. 
And uh, then around 2000, I'm fast forwarding, but then around 2009, I started the Pangean Orchestra first as an idea, but I took the ideas I had learned from the Chinese experience and I wanted to make it more inclusive. Why don't we bring in Arabic instruments and African instruments and South American and let's find a way to get them to all, you know, work together. It, it can't be just 40 people playing at the same time. We have to sound like one ensemble and we have some very unique challenges because some of these instruments are very quiet and some of these instruments are very loud. <laughs> so how do you get a blend and how do you get an ensemble sound? And that's something we've been working on. Uh, we're still around the Pangean Orchestra actually just got there. We just got our 501c3 and we're now a totally federally recognized nonprofit. And we're still looking at ways of when we take pieces from different cultures, how can we one, respect the culture and respect the way it was written and also now just do it in a, in a new style, not an American style per se. It doesn't have to be me leading it, but let's just see what happens when you play it with other instruments from Japan or from China or whatever is kind of the polar opposite, like Ireland, right? So uh, I've done a lot of Irish music and I was raised on a lot of Irish music. But when we take that and we play it with instruments from South America or Africa, it's going to bring on this whole new life and this whole new color. And then it just gives us new directions that the music can take us to. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I must admit, I have some experience in that myself. For a short time, I produced a world music television show. It actually didn't go anywhere, but we did produce some episodes. And I went to Thailand and Cambodia mostly because some of the money was coming from there and they w wanted us to to you know research some of their music what i always found the best was indigenous music that was influenced and even trying to emulate other styles of music because it was something that was brand new that they, they wound up playing i often would run into that and i found it very fascinating and then three years ago i was in australia and there was a concert on the steps of the Sydney Opera Hall. And it was the most fascinating, innovative band I think I've ever heard. They're from Papua New Guinea. There was 14 of them in the band. It was indigenous instruments with indigenous dancing, but at the same time, they'd put the instruments down, the drums down, and next thing you know, they'd be singing in five-part harmony. Or oh. they'd be rapping. And then they, they get behind electric instruments and just wail. And then they would have the combination of the indigenous with the electric. And it was one of the only times I've ever heard where, you know, sometimes it feels like, okay, I have these indigenous instruments and I'm tacking them on to this arrangement and they don't quite fit. But in this case, everything was symbiotic and it just worked really well. I, I was fascinated. It turns out it was a one-off thing, and it was uh, a free Papua New Guinea type of thing. So mm. I, I was lucky enough to be there, but it, I just love it. It's fantastic. Yeah, the the thing that we try to avoid, and it sounds like they were probably the masters of it, and if you know the band or any of the contacts, I would love to, to check it out. Uh, the problem we see, or I see, is with the ability to download instruments from Iran or wherever, we can play them on our keyboard, but because we're American and we don't listen to Persian classical music and, and we don't understand the, uh, the Daska system 
uh, of Iran or our maqams from the Arabic style. We don't understand them, their behaviors or anything. It's going to come off sounding like an American pop song or an American rock song with a sample of this other instrument. Yeah. What, what I'm really adamant about is I cannot just exploit the instrument just as a new sound because there's thousands of years of history behind some of those instruments. And when the instrument comes, it needs to come with the player too. And the player needs to be able to play what's idiomatic to, to them and then also contribute to the overall sound. And that's how you get a balance. Um, other than we tell them, oh, we've got this lick in C minor, you just play that. And, uh, you know, other than that, just smile and look pretty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it has to be more of a combination of collaborative effort. Um, so I don't want us to tr try sounding like it, you know, in a way it's a little bit of um, a benevolent imperialism or it's this kind of sonic imperialism where America is really cool and playing a rock guitar or playing a keyboard and getting drum loops is really cool. And it's been making its way around the world. And when that happens, some of the indigenous uh, cultures and musics become very unpopular within their own people. And they want to go hear a DJ. They want to go hear something played by Westerners. Because to them, that's exotic, right? To them, it's exotic and it's cool. And uh, the, the tradition of father to son and, and generations of learning rabab or whichever instrument, um, it's, it's not as cool as it once was within their own countries. Yeah. And I also feel like musicians, if we only practice at home and we never have a chance to go out and perform, it's kind of like putting us in a zoo uh, and we're just in a cage. And musicians need to be free. We need to be roaming right? We need to be out on the stage in our natural environment. And that's where, just like you were talking about earlier with that one chance to hear your composition, as a band, you could be confident that what you're doing is great, but before you get that audience response, you're not really sure. And you'll find the audience is responding to something that you weren't even thinking was that good, yeah. but the audience ate it up. And so, you know, I have to emphasize that part of the tune or this is our hook right here, not what I thought was going to be bringing them, bringing them in. So we need to be a proponent of giving more opportunities for these instruments to be in an environment where they can be played and respected. Um, so that's a big part of what I'm trying to do. I read that you had gone to Mongolia and you did something there. Yep. Do, do you know the band right now? It's a three-piece band that have broken out of Mongolia and it's, again, indigenous with Western combination, but I see things here all the time, and I can't remember the name of the band. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a few. Uh, I can't think of the name myself off the top of my head either, but there are a couple, and there is one group that's actually getting pretty good success here in the United States. When I was planning my tour of Japan, Korea, and, and Mongolia, they were actually on tour in Texas or something. Yeah. So I, I missed out. And they had that Tuvan singing, yeah. you know, the throat singing, and they had some other aspects uh, of, of their music, but they really blended it with what I would describe as more of a new age pop style. Um, like it was synths, but it was calming, cool sounds. And then they were able to use those sounds as the launching point to promote their culture. Uh, their singing and their things, but 
palatable for a Western audience. Yeah. I think they kind of, they were able to figure out that secret sauce of how Mongolian can I be <laughs> and get away with it in America and how much of American do I need to give them so that they feel safe and comfortable listening to me. Yeah. Um, there's always an unspoken barrier to going to a classical concert or a hip hop concert or whatever of the person going to the show has to feel confident enough that they can understand the music or that they get the music. I know with classical music, there's a, a big gap in that people won't go because they don't want to feel dumb. They don't know when to clap. Don't clap between movements. How do you know when the piece is done? Things that give, that might seem stupid to us, but it's a real fear. People don't like being uncomfortable. So they have to find those bridges. And with Mongolian or, or someone like that, they have to really find those bridges to let the audience not feel dumb. No, this is okay. You can listen to this and understand it. It's just a little outside what you're used to. Yeah. Tell me about Turkey. Turkey. So I went to Turkey in 2017 and I had been living there off and on, uh, splitting my time mostly in, in Turkey and, and part of the time in the United States. But where, where in Turkey? I started in Kushadasa, yeah. which uh, is near I, I've Izmir. been there, yes. Oh, you've been to Kushadasa? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of cruise ships that come in uh, like every day. Uh, and it, it's funny because the city gets wildly populated for about six hours and then it drops to nothing Yeah. again. Um, but so I started in Kushadasa and then moved to Antalya. And I spent most of my time in Antalya, but I also would take, you know, numerous trips up to Istanbul. And then a very good friend of mine who's a great singer. He lives in Ankara. So I took a few trips out to Ankara and got to, you know, each city in, in Turkey really, I mean, they're just different. And they have, I mean, they're all Turks, but, you know, it's just like America. People in Florida are different than people in New York are different than people in California. Like they're little things, but they kind of all add up to a bit of a different culture and a different vibe, right? Like there's some yeah. cities that, you know, you probably really love certain cities in the United States and other cities, eh, that's not really your thing. I know that's how I feel. There's certain cities I felt connected to and I loved. And there's other cities that were okay. They were fun, but it's just not somewhere for me. And it's, it's a similar thing in Turkey. Uh, and from Turkey, during my time there, I was playing music and playing uh, Dumbek and Darbuka Dumbek and playing like, you know, traditional Turkish music and learning about their meters and how they count because how they count and how they feel the meter is not how, how Westerners do it. I took a few videos at some concerts I was at where the music was in 5-8 and the entire crowd could clap on the right beats of 5-8. And I told you earlier that I had worked in, a church, worked in churches for almost 10 years. My music leaders in the churches always had a very hard time getting the congregation just to clap on two and four. <laughs> Uh, yeah. at the right time. Yeah. And here's just an audience of normal people, accountants, business folks, painters, whatever, clapping on the beats for 5-8. It was awesome. It was so cool. And they dance in 7-8 uh, Izmir in, in the area near Kushadasa. They're called Dokusekis, which means 9-8. So even the name of the people, like the playful kind of slang term for them, is based off of their music wow. that it's in nine eight, yeah. you know, and it's typically two 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 three, uh, the way they play it. I spent uh, about a week in Ankara. I spoke at 
Beacon College. Actually, it gave a keynote address there for a conference that they had. I loved it. I still have lots of friends there and, and, you know, just had the best time. And there were some great tour guides, so they took me all over. It was a wonderful experience. It's a good place because it's so, that's a very international city just from politics. Yeah. So the embassies are there and they have things that are a little bit more Western friendly that it probably would be easy to find uh, English speaking groups that could take you out and show you around. Um, For me, like, I would say Antalya and and Istanbul are more my favorite cities in Turkey over Ankara. Ankara is is fun, and I've had a every time I've been there, I've had an awesome time. Um, the vibe it kind of reminded me it reminded me a bit of DC in terms of it's a capital city, but then there was just I don't know it's just a it's a different vibe up there. Yeah, yeah. You have the nickname of World Maestro. Yes, which is a wonderful brand, I have to say. Thank you. How did that come about? So I I believe it came about the best of ways. I was leading the Pangean Orchestra, and we had our debut concert at Phoenix Symphony Hall. And I had a very good friend of mine that was kind of just pushing me along and helping me. And and he's a mandolin player. He's also a doctor. He's an Arab-Israeli, and he's actually back in Israel now. And he came to the show and after we had put on this big show, he just said, hey, world maestro. And he was calling me that. And it kind of stuck with some of the other musicians. And then from there, I was just world maestro. So at first, it was kind of funny. And then sometimes I feel like it's too arrogant. But I earned that name. Someone gave me that name. And uh, it is kind of true. I am around the world. And I am, I've been successful in different parts of the world putting on shows. And yeah, why not? You know, well, it's not like you named yourself that. That would be arrogant. Yeah, that would be for sure, for sure. So I'm glad you asked me that question, so we can get the story out to more folks. <laughs> that yes, it was actually given to me after a big show, and the other musicians all agreed on it. So <laughs> <laughs> I had consensus to to launch the brand. Yeah. At that point, yeah. You've also done film and television music. Yes. And it seems like your background would be perfect for television, especially. Yes. Yes and no. I, you know, writing for television, and that's mainly what I've done, is about subtracting a lot. When you're writing for a concert audience, you are the star. Your music is the star. So you've got these great melodies. You pass them around. You do different things. When you're writing for TV, especially most of the stuff I've done is cues that are in the background that provide the energy or provide the emotion for the scene. And in those parts, you just have to, you take the parameters that you're given, if you're given them from your supervisor of, we need, you know, 23 and a half seconds of this, and it has to have this and this and this, and you just do it and you mark it out and you do it. And then you go back and you have to edit and mix in a much different way than you do for when you're putting out a single or you're putting out your song. So I think at first, my first year, it was a real challenge because I was doing too much. I was writing too much in there and I had to keep subtracting. And I got, I had the greatest advice really that, that I think I hope your, your listeners will enjoy too is one of my first bosses. He said, take a blanket and put it over your television watch an episode of The Bachelor or some show and get a notebook out. And every time you hear a a song cue, 
write it down and write down what instruments were in there. How long was it on? And just watch an episode and then watch an episode of a different type of show that's also popular and do the same thing. Don't look at the screen, just listen to the music. Um, don't be distracted. You know, then you go back and watch it with the blanket off. You've got your cue sheet and you see it. And now you're seeing, okay, these instruments are here. Why? Oh, okay. Cause the actors are in this um, location or they're arguing about an affair or they're doing, Oh, so that's why they chose this. And for me, it, it was really good because when you throw that blanket over there and you, and you're just focused on the sound, you really can be just a, a researcher and you're writing down, okay, it's a string patch. It's got mellow bass drum in there, but very light. And you can just focus on the music and then you watch it paired with the thing and it's magic, you know, uh, that they needed each other. There's a relationship between the video that you're seeing and the sound that the person created for that scene. Um, and you, you give respect to the fact that dialogue, the action, our visuals are the star and the music is supporting that scene. So your music is giving it that sad emotion or your music is giving it a heartbeat, a driving beat. It's a car chase scene and it's got to be up at past, you know, 120 or so. The heart rate has to be a little bit higher. So you choose tempos that make you physiologically if I if my heart was beating at 132, I would be very anxious, on edge, probably running, and uh, and and you choose tempos like that. In the beginning, I didn't know that because I hadn't been trained in how to write for TV. Uh, I had been trained in how to write for concerts, and they're very different. You can find out more about Colin at WorldMaestro.com. That's WorldMaestro, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.